0: I'm Al Reese and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for some poems that interest us some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk Poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound archive, writing.upenn.edu slash pensound. Today I'm joined here at the Kelly Writers House in our Wexler studio by Meg Pendoli, a writer living in Philadelphia, among whose interests are queer homes, bodies, houses, neighborhoods the boundaries and histories they share, and how what happens there might be recorded and kept, whose writing has been published in Apiary, Cleaver, and Tin House's Open Bar, and who I'm glad to say is a longtime citizen of and a great dear friend of the Kelly Writer's House. And by Husna Hashim, the 2017-18 Youth Poet Laureate of Philadelphia, Author of the poetry collection Honey Sequence, a student here at the University of Pennsylvania whose residence is West Philadelphia by way of Gaithersburg, Maryland who has participated as a poet in, among many other venues, the Brave New Voices International Youth Poetry Slam Festival, the Muslim Congress Conference, and the Free Library Teen Poetry Slam, where she received first-place honors and whose work has appeared in Rookie Mag, Kid Spirit Online, New Moon Girls Media, the Kenyan Young Writers Anthology, and Voices of the East Coast Anthology and others. And by Mark Nowak, poet, cultural critic, playwright, essayist, professor, author of, among other books, Coal Mountain Elementary, one of my favorite books, Mark, and Shut Up, Shut Down Poems and Revenants, one of the very few contemporary artists who has found a way to recontextualize working class consciousness and activism within the American labor movement into the poetics and media art of the 21st century, whose new labor poetics has led him to found Worker Writers, an institute that organizes and facilitates poetry workshops with global trade unions, workers' centers, and other progressive labor organizations, and who is, with a little help from me, very little, the curator of today's very special episode of Poem Talk. Mark, welcome back to the Writer's House.
1: Thank you. It's great uh, to be here in in the studio,
0: which I haven't been in before. Yeah, you've been here, and we've done a Poem Talk, but it was up in my office back in the day. It's good to see you, and you had a day in Philadelphia. I did. Say one thing you did that you liked.
1: Uh, Well, as a native Buffalonian, it was great to see the Tony Conrad show.
0: Yeah, and we say Buffalonian. Yes. Okay, that's good to know. I didn't know that. Husna, thank you for joining us. Thanks. Your first time doing Poem Talk, but you're at the Writer's House just about every day. So it's great to see you. And Meg Pendoli.
2: It's so great to be here. It's a
0: treat. It's a treat always to see you. Well, today uh, we four have gathered here to talk about six short poems following the Tonka form. The six poems were composed by three poets, two Tonkas each, by Christine Yvette Lewis, by Lorraine Garnett, and Davidson Garrett. The poems are members of the aforementioned Worker-Writer School. Actually, I didn't mention the school, but affiliated with the project, Worker-Writer School, which meets regularly in New York City. The recordings we will hear were made by Brooklyn-based filmmaker Zardin Richardson at a meeting of the workshop on February 2nd, 2019. And with our program notes at Jacket 2 Magazine, we will make available the films, video and audio, of the three poets performing their poems. For our podcast, of course, we'll listen to audio-only copies of the recordings Zardin made. So here now are, in order of appearance, Christine Yvette Lewis, Lorraine Garnett, and Davidson Garrett reading two tankas each.
3: Basto Road. Depressive. Women with rhythm in their verb, talk laundry, pinched wages, long hours, live in, live out, twin. Mrs. Home, the new plantation. She dust legacy, privileged oil paintings, Things, Peruvian bell. Almost eight years here. This house, no room for her except work. What do you expect? Can we clean this filthy house? Need soap, pine sol, bleach. They wept, washed the floors with tears. It hurts. Stop pouring the bleach. The blind man next door was forced to help clean his house. He measured my ties to see how much I had grown. I was a child, six years old. The mouse in my house
4: is clever and crafty as he darts away, snubbing the yellow cheese bits, waiting for him in the trap. They say October will deliver a surprise, and I recall this in line at Trader Joe's as a pumpkin grins at me.
0: Meg, you get to pick a Tonka to start talking oh, about. My Which one? Goodness. They're all good, but They're pick one. They're all good. What's one that really intrigues you?
2: Well, I really love October, um, but I think I'd like to start with The Dust Legacy.
0: Okay. So that's Christine Yvette Lewis.
2: Yeah, I think that what, um, what really drew me here is um, how... Legacy works here, too. So I think especially that first line, she dusts legacy, um, where I think that there's maybe a couple different ways to read that. Um, but I think the first time I read it through and I was thinking of um, sort of the mechanics of dusting um, these objects, which I think, you know, and appear in the second line. Um, but I think it's also can be a Um, being a Dust legacy, so, like, a legacy of Dust as well, Mm. um, which Mm. was really interesting to me.
1: Mm. Mark, take it from there. Yeah, I... I agree. I, I'm really intrigued by the way things hangs at the end of the second line uh, because the, the poem is really so much about the objects, right, the the oil paintings, the house, uh, etc., and that idea of no room for work. It's something that has come up in a, in a lot of the poems that that it's like almost this 24-hour day, especially for the live-in domestic workers who, you know, might be called at 2 in the morning to put a child back to sleep and are taking the kids to school and are up late at night when people come home late to cook another dinner so that there's no space in the house except not for things but but for work, for an action.
0: Yeah. I mean, Christine Yvette Lewis, we know, is a leader of Domestic Workers United and – a full-time domestic worker. So, I mean, you didn't really need to know that to get the sense that she is talking about this work from the inside. Has to add something, some observation about that poem to the discussion?
5: Yeah, I was drawn towards two parts of the Tonka. The first, um, moving from legacy to privileged and thinking of a kind of state of being held inside of an artistic rendering. So what does it mean for the privilege to exist inside of the oil painting? And then moving down um, a house not having any any room for you to be any part of your entirety beyond someone who is providing for another person and the lack of the ability to exist um, inside of the home without the labor that is for the house, mm. which ultimately she never will benefit from beyond mm. a wage. Wow.
0: Thank you. Um, Meg, uh, We've I think one of the reasons why you picked it and we all are happy to talk about it is that it does such a great job of putting work and art in the same tiny poem. Definitely. So... Well, I have a couple of questions. Uh, one is, who's the Peruvian Belle? Is that someone p- depicted in a f- painting? Is that possibly Christine herself? Is it a reference to the uh, person who employs her? What, what is that? And another question is, does the Tonka, as a f- – I don't think you'll be able to handle both of <laughs> these, but anybody – does the Tonka itself answer back about the privilege of art a little bit or – kind of mm. provide its own, um, I don't want to say privilege, but preciousness, a kind of counter preciousness. Take either of those.
2: <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, I think both of them are kind of slippery. I don't know if I can uh, have a solid answer, but I think that, I think for for me, Peruvian Bell offers a kind of um, shift or like, a, I'm going to steal some of your language here, but like a counterbalance to things. Um, in that line so privileged oil paintings things Peruvian bell um, and I think that the Peruvian Bell could be um, the speaker um, who is uh, maybe eight years here this house here in this house maybe um and I think it could also be like a subject of the oil painting but I think that that the bell there i think what what can be kind of confusing is that it is um yeah maybe that's kind of a precious way of talking about a person um which could be playing off of the oil painting as well even if it's not the subject of the painting mm. which is interesting mm.
1: Yeah, I think I'll jump in on the tanka form is that, um, you know, one of the things we we looked at uh, with the tanka form is it's this short form, right? It's a Japanese five lines, five, seven, five, seven, seven syllable count. And we talked about ways in which these could be written at work. And in fact, in one of the early workshops when we talked when about them— you say we,
0: you mean you and the poet workers.
1: Yeah, the workers in the school. And so I had gotten everybody little, small— pocket Japanese notebooks to carry around with them in the taxi for work, etc. And they would come back with uh, notebooks filled with tankas. And so I I think it becomes this form that we can turn to. It's not like trying to write a novel or a short story or or something else. It's like something happened and I can pull out my pocket notebook and jot it down in five lines and then go on with what I'm doing.
0: It's brevity and it's formalism turn out to be Somewhat ironically, given the use of those terms, usually useful, Mm -hmm. practical. Mm -hmm.
5: That's immediately making me think of kind of Gwendolyn Brooks and Audre Lorde and kind of how form historically for women of color specifically, not having the privilege of a large typewriter that you need to cart around or not having the money to buy expensive paints. If you can have a scrap of a napkin or a small notebook, you have access to poetry, um, in a way that you wouldn't have access to another art form.
0: And uh, that's really great. And and Christine Yvette Lewis seems to be at least in the two poems that we picked. And I must say, I think I picked the final two, but they're both poems. Mm-hmm. right? So I guess, before, I, be, I, of course, we want to turn to the other two poets. But before we leave, Christine, can we talk about the Barstow Road poem, which is really great?
3: Barstow Road depressive. women with rhythm in their verb, talk laundry, pinched wages, long hours, live in, live out, twin, Mrs. home, the new plantation.
0: Mark, I love the way this thing works grammatically. talk becomes a very pivotal verb. It's actually the you know the launching point predicate interestingly follows the word verb which is not actually acting as a verb. So we get a location. We get who the subjects are—depressive women. Um, we get them described to th- with two prepositional phrases to locate the situation with rhythm in their verb, and this and the rest is what they talk about. Can you say something about what they talk about? It's fascinating.
1: Well, sure. And and I think part of it is a tie back to the fact that Christine is one of the main organizers for Domestic Workers United. And they were the group that got the first uh, domestic worker bill of rights passed in the U.S., uh, signed by Governor Patterson in New York State because historically farm workers and domestic workers had been left out of uh, earlier labor legislation. And this poem to me is interesting because it – it feels like the work of the organizer happening in the poem right it's there like okay we're we're here on this road and let's start talking about laundry and then pinched wages and then being overworked in long hours and then Oh well, we have this organization, Domestic Workers mm-hmm. United, and here are the rights that you have as a domestic worker. And so it it it's interesting that the movement of the poem is both descriptive, but also organizational in a way, like a mm-hmm. like an organizing mechanism. Yeah, wow, I love that last that point.
2: It, yeah, I think it's interesting that you talk about organizing mechanism too, um, because I think the especially um, in comparison to some of the other um, poems or tankas of hers here. Uh, I think the punctuation is kind of interesting um, that we end some, it's like really cuts the um, tanka up. And and it's also in seven sentences, I think, or at least we have seven periods, which is also part of.
0: Pretty hard um, to do five line tanka with seven sentences.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And that like getting a lot done. Right. Working hard. Yeah.
0: I love the way the list gives way to um, uncapitalized sentence starts. Mm -hmm. And then twin Mrs. Home is just a devastating thing. Why don't we, we can come back to these, but let's, uh, why don't we go to one of Lorraine Garnett's poems. Husna, will you pick one of the two that we talk about?
5: The first.
0: The first, yeah.
3: What do you expect? Can we clean this filthy house? Need soap? Pine soul bleach they wept, washed the floors with tears. It hurts. Stop pouring the
0: bleach It's a question without a question mark
5: right i what I wrote down was the insinuation of continuity um, in regards to the first line, what did you expect? It's almost as if there's something that predates kind of the the naming of the what.
0: What would predate um, it? Some kind of um, complaint or argument?
5: A, a, a disagreement or an accusation, perhaps. I was most drawn towards the last two lines. Would you read
0: those last two lines, please?
5: They wept, washed the floor with tears. It hurts, Stop pouring the bleach.
0: We find out why they wept at the end. It's not this, the tears of sadness that may be there, but it's the bleach
5: the burning from the the bleach. But it also made me think of, like, is it almost as if bleach is coming out of eyes, which, like, obviously mm. isn't what is happening, but that is what i that's what I thought of. And then also who has stopped being? directed towards like it is it an interior direction of like stop like I need to stop doing this action that's ultimately harming me or am I asking for permission to stop or am I speaking to someone else um, so it's very like insular while being directed towards something
0: Mark the pronouns here are uh, complicated
1: yeah. They are, but I, I like the address to you in the – it opens the poem up, I think, Could in that first us. line. Could be us. What do you expect? Yeah. And then uh, I was also intrigued by the third line because this – there's a sort of a progression from soap to pine salt to bleach. There's like an increased strength Pine is supposedly like a middle product.
0: ground, yeah. you know, toxic.
1: Right. So it, it moves up. It's like – it's so filthy that we tried soap and then we tried pine salt and we had to end up with bleach because – because there was there was so much
0: dirt. but is there a difference between the we that ponders whether we can clean the house and the they who wound up weeping over the bleach?
1: I there isn't but I don't know it, it could or it could not be. I, I felt the same way with the the tears like it could be from the bleach, but I think it's maybe the combination of of experience and, and the bleach history and the bleach. I think all of that is creating creating the tears.
0: Meg, Lorraine Garnett is a full-time domestic worker. Mm -hmm. Um, This, The second Tonka is difficult and disturbing. Mm -hmm. What's going on there?
3: The blind man next door was forced to help clean his house. He measured my ties to see how much I had grown. I was a child, six years old.
2: I don't know. Yeah, this was one that I I struggled with as well, um, because I think I think what tripped me up the most is forced to help clean his house in the second line, um, because I think we see this really matter of fact um, way of approaching um, what sounds like an assault um, with a child, or uh, and this kind of measuring, and it's a measured tone throughout. Um, but I think the, yeah, the blind man next door was forced to help clean his house. So there's also this kind of like,, um, is she cleaning, is she cleaning his house? so then what is his relationship to her? But then um, the power dynamic with um, bringing disability in, um, and measuring thighs and touch being like a way of seeing as well. Um so I wasn't I wasn't really sure what their
5: relationship was to each other.
0: Hesna, what do you think of that blind man one?
5: I also was tripped up at kind of, I guess, the like beginning um, lines. But it made me think a lot about the inability to choose what you do with yourself as a child mm-hmm. and perhaps um, having to work in order to provide for a family or to just be like an active member of a family and not having the right to, quote unquote, we would kind of understand as a traditional American childhood and the insinuation of abuse or violation being a result of the lack of the privilege to youth and youthfulness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: I see it as a memory. I mean, I think you do too. Mm -hmm. Um, A traumatic memory so that the speaker is bearing witness to something that happened. Now that the speaker has become a full-time domestic worker, there's this thing. in the neighborhood guy, the neighbor guy who was forced presumably by his family who went out and did their thing. And they said, well, you're blind. You stay home. You clean up. And then he in turn became this went from this kind of lack of privilege situation, kind of a shut-in situation, to be abusive of the girl next door who then becomes a domestic worker. So I, I see it as kind of like the childhood trauma that helps you reflect on the work that you do now. Mark, what do you think of that? Is that overreading?
1: Yeah, I, I don't think so. I think that the second line is really interesting because it could be helping the blind man, but it, it could in this situation be helping... Uh, parent or an aunt or yeah. a cousin or a sister mm-hmm. you know like some, like we the it, it's it's not stated clearly right so we we can read different things into that line i i think that a lot of uh this poem and and uh, some of the other poems that we didn't even choose for for um, this podcast kind of emerge out of that the Me Too mo- moment and the a lot of the domestic workers thinking thinking that through mm-hmm. and I that's what made the last line so powerful mm-hmm. to me that she even used that uh, caesura the the pause in between to doubly emphasize how young she was when this happened to her.
0: Yes, and this is a um, a convention of testimony you say at the end. Mm-hmm. I was six years old. This is what happened to me when I was mm-hmm. six. It's complicated also um, by the blindness that begins and then the measuring. Mm-hmm. Um, it's you know, So one assumes that the six-year-old didn't quite know what she was getting into when she went over there to assume that she was dealing with a person who was very powerless. now, what do you think?
5: I feel like this caesare might be a form of reclamation in that it is an extension and almost a form of measuring in itself just being an extension of space and the fact that your eyes have to physically move across the space in order to get to the next word.
0: Thank you. Um, So Davidson Garrett recently retired from more than 40 years of driving a taxi in New York City. And we have two tankas, So, Mark, you get to pick which one we talk about first.
1: Uh, Let's start with The Mouse in My House. The mouse in my
4: house is clever and crafty as he darts away snubbing the yellow cheese bits
1: waiting for him in the trap. In all of Davidson's poems, you know, I don't I don't think you can drive a New York City taxi for 40 years and not have working class experience come into each and every one of the poems. So, you know, is he the is the worker, the mouse, are the yellow cheese bits related to the taxi? Oh, you're what taking my allegory trend? away. <laughs> from <me. laughs>
0: It's an allegory of driving a taxi, isn't it?
1: I I think it is. or, Or it's at least an economic critique. Mm -hmm.
0: And what's that critique?
1: Well, you know, uh, Davidson actually was just, uh, I think, about a week or two ago in a photo in the New York Post from the New York Taxi Workers Alliance protesting a new surcharge of $2.50, congestion pricing that Governor Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio had put in place, and they were all protesting. There was another big one this week. And so it, it feels like... The yellow cheese bits are these things we can't attain or these small things that, you know, were, are being taken away from us or that are traps for us. And so I, I see it as a simple poem, but as a protest poem at the same point in time. Meg, what do you think?
2: Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. I think that we can see it um, yeah, as a allegory for driving a taxi sure, absolutely. Um but I think that there's also this larger thing. I mean, as you said with um these incentives, um these attractive things um that in a system are built to entrap you and maybe kill you. Um that, you know, just can also be a comment on capitalism. <laughs> I mean, these dreams of um getting around and finding finding your cheese bit. Um yeah, so I definitely saw that as well.
0: What I really love about the six together because there were thirty that I looked at and hundreds that have been created at the in the workshops. But so this is a ridiculous thing to say in a way, but to, to the curation of the six, you in, makes this so special. This one because here's the taxi guy who's not a domestic worker, setting it in a domestic scene and Mm. offering his economic critique through the literality, not the the analogy, but the actual thing about the house. I mean, he's, you know, it's not the best situation. There are mice all over the place. Anyway, Husna, what are your thoughts on this one?
5: I really like that extended metaphor and kind of expansion. Um, But I'm really interested in the word trap and how trap is the last word of the tonka. did you say the word
0: trap oh you're too much that's great the
5: and how it re, but how it relates to the metaphor then also how it might relate to kind of a literal mouse being in a house um waiting for him in the trap so if we go with the metaphor of yellow cheese with perhaps being taxis? Yellow cab, what, do, yeah. what does the trap represent? Is it the city itself? Is it the structure of kind of needing to do this like intensive labor of dealing with a lot of people on a regular basis and kind of like going using the, the taxi as the vehicle for achieving that? I don't know.
0: When you said word trap before, I thought you, you said the word trap, but I thought I, sorry, I misheard you to be saying that there's a word trap. I mean, that might might also be... Oh, totally. It's the last word of the poem. It's a snap trap, you know. Um, Before we get to this really great October surprise poem by the same Davidson Garrett, I want to ask you three just to ponder on the history of the Tonka briefly. I mean, we could go, we could have a whole hour on the history of Tonka, so I don't really mean to open that can of worms, but... The tradition, other than the strict um, five-line thing with the various syllables five, seven, five, seven, seven, um, subject matter traditionally, and haikus in the same, you know, and sonnets to some degree, you know, these sort of traditional forms, they they don't dictate sub subject matter, but they kind of determine it somewhat through tradition. So we have. If you just look – if you just Google tankas, you're going to get most definitions which say tankas are about nature. They're about the seasons. They're about love. They're about sadness and other strong emotions. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So obviously these proletarian tankas are an effort to expand the tanka. You know, we're uh, – sorry, I don't want to characterize you. I am Tell like me. a avant-garde brat. I like, you know, experimental. Don't mm-hmm. give me tankas. I'm not interested in sonnets. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But Mark's turned me on through the Institute and through this – the conversations we've had to set up this poem talk. Tanka is explosive, radical, amazing. So how do we get that when everybody else thinks it should be about love and the seasons?
2: Yeah, well, I think I – I think about what Hesna said about – um like a form where you can um jot down something right maybe and that um we're not talking about an epic so there's part of that um I like thinking about um a formal quality with or I think it's exciting I think there's like a lot of room to think about a formal poem especially a short formal poem um that kind of closes in on itself too with a like uh, with symmetry of, like, syllable count um, in terms of a workday um, and structured time. So I think if you're already working with Structured
0: within, time. Yeah. Like, yeah.
2: And like and that's what this is, I think, also. And, like, that is what um, a syllable structure does. It, does. it structures the time of reading and writing. Yeah. So.
0: Mark, you, you've thought about this. Do you have a little sort of... Capsule history that you know, you've really been interested in this?
1: Yeah. Um, well, there's this book um, by, uh, edited and translated by a, a great scholar of Japanese literature, Makoto Ueda, called Modern Japanese Tanka. And what I got really interested in reading the introduction uh, to this book is his discussion of how in Japan in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, there were these proletarian. Tonka societies and left-wing Tonka societies, which even through... Japanese poets and translators who I've talked to that most of this work probably not surprisingly hasn't been translated yet, right? And so there's this there's this large kind of working class history, leftist history of the tanka out there, but we just don't at least as English reader, English language readers have have access to it yet. And so it was that little passage in the modern Japanese tanka book that made me think, well, we should do that. And when I brought it to the all the workers at the Worker Writers School, I said, here's a list of things, and they had these societies in Japan, and what do we want to call ourselves? And they all had a big discussion and voted on the Tonka Workers Collective, and they were going to, like, write tankas. And they wrote, many of them wrote 40, 50, 75 tankas. And, you know, we have, we have hundreds of them that we're hoping to gather together into a, a collection at some point.
0: It might seem obvious at this point in this really good conversation, but let's see say it anyway, what could be the natural, rational, obvious, sensible association of proletarianism, of working, and a form that is thought of as ethereal, precious, um, moment in time capturing, preferably at the top of a mountain, you know, or in a field. What could be the association, the counter-natural association of Domestic work, let's say, and Tonka.
1: You know, I think that if we look at a different form like the haiku, right? We we could say something similar, that there is, of course, like a brand, which is the bourgeois imperial history of the form. But there are there's also a huge history of poets in the sixties, seventies, eighties turning to the haiku. I think of you know, Sonia Sanchez's work mm-hmm. with haiku, uh, Amiri Baraka's locus, Victor Hernandez Cruz doing these in his his book, Red Beans, these translations of Basho's frog pond haiku into Spanish and out of Spanish back into, you know, like. Tanya Foster, a uh, swarm of
0: bees on high court is mm-hmm. a great example of haiku.
1: Yeah. So I, I, I think that. So the
0: revolution has occurred once in a while. It happens and it happened in the proletarian Tonka societies in it Japan. It absolutely did. Just before the terrible fascism that, you know, kind of probably shut all that down.
4: They say October will deliver a surprise. And I recall this in line at Trader Joe's as a pumpkin grins at me.
2: I really love this poem. Um, I really love recalling a surprise also. Like, I know it's recalling someone telling you that there's going to be a surprise, um, but I love thinking of that as... um, Kind of stealing the or like seeing it as like a manufactured surprise. It's going to be a surprise, and also having this, um, yeah, having this maybe plastic pumpkin um, in this like, commercial setting. Um, sort of
0: nightmarish. There, it's kind
2: you know. of nightmarish. Yeah.
0: Can we say for the record what an, what the October surprise is in national politics? The October surprise in presidential, particularly presidential election. There's everybody says, well, barring the October surprise. Right. I didn't know this. Oh, yeah. So the October surprise is the thing that changes the election, that changes the course of the election. Mm. So uh, Ronald Reagan manufactured one with the Iranian uh, hostages against Jimmy Carter. He actually undid the October surprise by delaying the freeing of the hostages till he was elected or by helping delay. it. It's completely criminal what he did. Um, and uh, so the October surprise – and there was an October surprise in the 2016 election, which was the videotape. And that didn't seem to do the job Mm -hmm. from a certain point of view. But anyway, so if you think about that, he's thinking about the news. This almost feels like a 2016 or a 2018 election thing. I'm standing in line at Trader Joe's. Maybe he's looking at the New York Post, you know, at the checkout line. And they say there's going to be October surprise. Okay, so given that, what that word and... Does a tremendous amount of work because if the first two lines refers to the political news and changes the whole thing, like I'm standing in line and recall what? What's what's the – how does the and work, Mark? Where do we go from there?
1: Well, I mean, you know, we have this notion of uh – the poem is emotion recollected in tranquility and here we kind of get the opposite of that because if you've been to any Trader Joe's anywhere in Manhattan, you know it's it's complete complete bedlam uh, and so I, I imagine him like you know, Kind of, once you're in line, you feel like you've sort of made it through and you can relax a little. And then he gets this kind of ghoulish pumpkin grinning at him in his moment of relaxation. Yeah.
2: I feel like it's also the dread. I feel like gets the same weight of dread as you've made it through this ghoulish line, as you say, and then you forget that you um we're supposed to get eggs or milk or something. Like it's it's that same kind of There's a um,
0: recollection, I recall.
2: Right. Yeah, yeah. But I like thinking about it and I hadn't even known this or remembered this, I guess, um, before now. Um, but having the October surprise being a like larger political thing, um, and then having it be in the same space as maybe a space where you would remember that you forgot eggs.
0: I don't know. I, like I just that. know what do you think of this one?
5: I think of recollection as a feeling type of sensation and what does it mean to be in line and be it a political remembrance or a grocery remembrance <laughs> or, you know, lack thereof to, to have, like you said, have this position in the same space. Um, and maybe I'm curious as to what is the, the bodily response to the thought.
0: For me, there are two October surprises. One is the political thing they say, the pundits say, there's going to be a big change in the direction of things. And the other is, of course, Halloween at the end of the month, yeah. which is what the pumpkin reminds him of. That's the October Sprite. Boo! Mm-hmm. <laughs> <I> mean, basically. <laughs> well, we talked about six tankas. I think, I hope that the poets, well, you'll actually get to hang out with them and I will. hear their response to this. We should probably take the crew on the road and, and, and record their responses, but... I know that you also came to this discussion with lots of other things you wanted to say, so I invite each of us to say one final thing about anything about the Tonkas, as a whole, um, about a particular one that you didn't get a chance to talk about more. So who has a final thought?
1: I can Mark? do one. Is that, uh, one thing I wanted to say about uh, Davidson's Tonko, about the yellow cheese bits waiting for him in the trap, um, is that I, I think that in the past couple of years, with the increase in Uber and Lyft drivers, uh, there's been a lot of protests in New York City. Uh, there's been eight uh, driver suicides now uh, because of economic conditions of trying to make a living driving in New York. Uh, and so that Yellow cheese bits waiting for him in the trap seems like the trap of the gig economy, you know, of these these jobs that can't pay us to live and uh, and the work that organizations like the New York Taxi Workers Alliance are doing to, to, to try to cap Uber and Lyft and get rid of the surcharge in lower Manhattan and, and all of those traps that are around uh, working drivers lives. Mm. Fantastic. Thank you. How's the final thought?
5: I had a little bit more to say about the first um, Christina Vett Lewis Tonka and the end. I guess it could be considered the last sentence of the first um, tanka, the new plantation and what it means for domestic work to be a continuation of a certain level of degradation directed towards people of color, specifically black women. Um, there were certain words that she used that I was really drawn towards, like pinched or like the feeling of, you know, when she says twin, twin his home, what does that mean for the feeling state of a home that is actually your own, um, yeah.
0: Fantastic. Thank you. Meg, final thought?
5: Yeah. I also wanted to talk about Christine Yvette
2: Lewis. Um, I think I'm still stuck on the last two lines of the second poem, actually, um, Almost eight years here, this house, no room for her except work. Um, and I think I'm also thinking about that um, continuation that you just mentioned, Hasna, um, with... Uh yeah, thinking about duration, how you can be um, for a place in eight years and still not have – how that place – you can be in a place for eight years and that place can still not have room for you. Um, But, of course, you've already been there. So what does that mean to be a place and not be a place for it to not have space to hold you but you're already there? Um, And then – the accept work um, kind of being an afterthought, or, or maybe that's the answer to that. How can I have space, not have space for you, but you're already there question. Um, but I also think that, or I like to think of it um, doing its own kind of work in this poem, um, where maybe this, this poem and this space that the poem um, creates for uh, the poet, for Christina Yvette Lewis, um, is a space to do a different kind of work um, and to work through some of that. So I think I'm still stuck on that.
0: Well, my final thought is actually back to that same poem, um, the Christine Yvette Lewis's Dust Legacy poem. I, I just want to go back to the meta-poetic reading or the meta-art reading, um, which is the right one, I think. Uh, she's dusting the paintings. She's, she's, the paintings are in a house or apartment, and she's dusting presumably the frames. Um, she spent a lot of time, maybe more than the owner of these paintings, looking at them and thinking about them. There's something. So this is re- serious, like art criticism. Mm. Um, and then, uh, you know, we just the ambiguity of the Peruvian bell. Is that is that the person depicted in the painting? Is that something she's imagining for herself? Mm. Um, you know, is that if you if the house had more room? Could that could a Peruvian bell show up? But the first line is a powerful counterstatement because of its optional subject-verb agreement. She dusts legacy, not she dusts legacy. She's talking the way she in a poem, the way she wants to talk, and that kind of chips away at that privilege. She's still going to clean it because I think she likes the painting of the things you know that she cleans. Well, we'd like to end Poem Talk with a minute or two of gathering paradise, which is a chance for us to spread wide our narrow hands, Dickinsonian hands, to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world. Meg, are you ready to gather some paradise?
2: I am. I am. I'm reading... Zach Ozma's first book from Sibling Rivalry Press. Um, Zach's a West Philadelphia poet, um, and the title of his book is um, Black Dog Drinking from an Outdoor Pool. Um, it's really excellent, a lot about uh, grief and coming up with a new language to um, think through grief and trauma. Um. I think it's really great
0: and say or spell the name of the poet. Sure,
2: um, Zach, so Z
5: A C H mm-hmm. and Osma, Ozma, O Z M A.
0: Fantastic. Husna,
5: I've been reading May May Bersenberger for Alice class, and that's May been... May Bersenberger, <laughs> she's so That's good. been like super great. I'm excited to read Hello the Roses over break and also knitting. I think that is very poetic, <laughs> and that's what I've been doing is knitting socks.
0: Tell us why. Not why you've been knitting, but why it's poetic.
5: I think the kind of physical movement of weaving and what that means for disjointedness or discontinuity or disconnection to have kind of a final product based off of a single strand that's very, very long of um, yarn and also kind of having to read patterns and learn patterns and patterns being very poetic in the sense that they don't really make sense
0: <laughs> it's a code. I mean, it, when I s- encountered you in the kitchen, you were you were doing it, and you were looking at your phone, which had the pattern in code, and i didn't I don't know anything about this, so I thought you were reading some kind of weird avant-garde poetry and <laughs> getting into it And, and she was. <laughs> was and she was as a matter of fact. Mark, gather some paradise.
1: Uh, I thought I'd just read one uh, tanka from this modern Japanese. Yes, yeah,
0: say again. It's Maeda, right? Spell yeah, it.
1: Makoto uh, Ueda. U E D A. U E D A. Okay. And uh, this is a, a tanka from someone named Toki Zanmaru that we talked about in the in the classes. We're poor because we don't work. We'll be poor even if we do. We'll work anyway. And the title of the book? Modern Japanese Tonka.
0: So uh, my Gathering Paradise has to do with this, really the the, the inspiration of this particular special uh, episode of Poem Talk, um, and that is the Worker Writers at workerwriters.org, if you're looking for them on the web, uh, founded by our pal here, Mark Nowak. Um, and I hope that everybody will go to Worker's Workerwriters.org and find out about the organization. Um, there are, they're involved in a network of such groups and supporters. I'll name a few. And then I just want to quote from the About page so people know about it. Among their sort of networked partners are the uh, Domestic Workers United, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, the Ju- Justice for Domestic Workers, the J4DW. Uh, the National Domestic Workers Alliance, the Pan-American Center, and they have provided you space. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, they've been super supportive of the project now in its uh, eighth year in collaboration with Pan-America.
0: And they so they give you space and some other help.
1: Yeah, we do uh, events at the Pan World Voices Festival every year. Right. Uh, They help with some uh, grants and other things like that for the workshop. So Yeah.
0: And before I read the uh, sentence from the About page, I guess I guess it's a .org. So it's a nonprofit organization, and it could always use support.
1: We can always use support. I just thought I
0: would say that. Um, so from the About page, uh, these workshops, so the workshops that Mark and others host pretty regularly, always in the city?
1: Uh, well, we've done them in the city, but all around the world as well, the U.K., Amsterdam, South Africa, Panama.
0: What a project. These workshops create a space for participants to reimagine their working lives, nurture new literary voices directly from the global working class, and produce new tactics and imagine new futures for working class social change. So that's fantastic. And that is all the uh, grinning Trader Joe's pumpkins we have time for on Poem Talk today. That was supposed to be a laugh line. Did I not get that right?
2: They're scary. They're
0: scary. Okay, I'll do another (laughs) one. No, the other ones are not funny either. Well, that's all the Pine saw and Bleach we have time for on Poem Talk today. don't do that. No. No. Okay. Mm -mm. Well, that's all the October surprises we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writers House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing, the Kelly Writers House at the University of Pennsylvania, and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. O R G. Thanks so much. This was so much fun to my guests, Meg Pendoli, Hasna Hashim, and Mark Nowak, and to Poem Talk's directors and engineers today, Zach Cardner and Leah Baxter and Annie Fang, although Annie showed up a little late. Hi, Annie. Thank you for what you're doing anyway. And to Poem Talk's editor, the same amazing Zach Cardner, and a shout out to Nathan and Elizabeth Light for their very generous support of Poem Talk. Next time on Poem Talk, we will have gone on the road to Providence, Rhode Island, where from the home of Rosemary and Keith Waldrup, we will record a conversation with Kate Colby, Lainey Brown, Monica De La Torre, and Rosemary Waldrup herself on Rosemary's prose poem, Memory Tree, from her book, Split Infinites. This is Al Filris, and I hope you'll join us for that or another episode of Home Talk.